Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Philosophy of friendship is simply this, that any relationship begun here on earth is an eternal relationship. It goes on forever, whether you like it or not. Once we meet somebody on earth, we're going to be living together forever in heaven, right? So we may as well try to get to know each other a little bit. And that's kind of how I view every relationship. That's an interesting dimension to put on relationships when you think of it that way. Um, that they have eternal potential. And so I like to keep in touch with folks. And one of the ways we do that is through the newsletter. So if you want to keep in touch, be sure to get a copy and let us know that you would like a copy on a quarterly basis. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to be talking about um, falling in life's journey, recovering from your failures. We're looking at the life of Peter and talking about the making of a disciple as demonstrated in his life. We've seen how the Lord has taken him from his initial knowledge of salvation to declaring for him a purpose for his life and fishing for men, and then on to other commitments that challenged him in the most essential, deepest fashion, the commitments of discipleship. We said that discipleship is a journey, but sometimes it's not a destination, it's a journey, and sometimes that journey gets interrupted. And we're going to talk about those interruptions tonight when we fall along that journey. I'm going to be speaking from uh, several different passages, uh, different segments of uh, Peter's experience. One is John chapter 13, and then we might look a little bit later at John 18. We're even going to go to Luke chapter 22 a little bit, and uh, you might want to stick something in there. I'm going to stick a little sticker myself in there because I forgot to do it earlier. There we go. There was a frog and two ducks who lived on a happy little pond. Must have been in Texas, I guess, because it dried up. And the duck said, oh, well, I guess we better go find us another pond. And the frog said, well, wait a minute. You can't just leave me here. The pond's miles away. The frog got nervous, and he finally came up with a brilliant idea, he thought. He said, hey, look, you guys, take this stick and hold it in your hands, and I'll grab it with my mouth, and then you can fly me to the next pond. I said, okay. So pretty soon they were airborne and way up high, and a crow flies by. And the crow says, well, look at that. What a brilliant idea. Whose idea was that anyway? And the frog said, mine. Pride goes before a fall. The Bible tells us. I was watching, just caught a little glimpse of uh, an interview with Joe Lockhart, the press secretary for the president. He just retired. Today was his first day of out of retirement. And they were just asking him, what's it like to be at home for a day? And, and then they started asking him about his experience and, and uh, the predictions that uh, Clinton would be booted out of office because of his affair. And he says, well, and he was talking about both sides. He says, well, one thing we learned in Washington is don't, you don't gloat in Washington, D.C. because it will come around and bite you in the end. We have, a, we have a president who said, I will have the most moral administration in history. And that certainly came around to haunt him again. Pride comes 
before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you haven't fallen yet, you will. It's not a question of if, but when. Everybody in life's journey, as we walk with the Lord, makes mistakes or falls into sin or fails the Lord in some way. Today I want to look at Peter. At a time in his life when he really stepped on a spiritual banana peel and went down. But he got back up. And we're going to see how that happens. It seems that God is just in the business of humbling the proud. That's kind of his job description, if you will. So whatever we're proud of, beware. Of our birth, of our parents, of our children, of our school, of our education, of our job, our success, our paycheck, our title, where we live, our skill, our talent, our ability. God is in the business of humbling the proud. There can only be one God in this universe. And you'll see what he did with Peter. The episode that we're looking at here was about two and a half years after Jesus told Peter the conditions for discipleship and after Peter, we know, took up and followed Jesus and had been with him now in this, this intense classroom of learning. And it was a painful passage for him that we're going to see today, a painful part of his journey. But it just seems the destiny of every Christian to go through some time of, of pain for not living up to what we claim to believe and what we know the Lord wants for us. Like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress who found himself in the slough of despond. Every journey seems to be interrupted with some side trip where we really didn't want to go. There will be interruptions in our following. I want to look at John chapter 13. Peter's following was interrupted. And that interruption was actually predicted by the Lord, but it didn't help any. Now, chapter 13 through 17 in the book of John takes place in the upper room, the night that Jesus was betrayed. And here we have him gathered with his 12 disciples, 12 at first, Judas leaves, 11 in a little while, but he teaches them some of the most important and intimate ministry lessons of their three years together. The first one he did in chapter 13 was he taught them humble servitude when he washed their feet. He taught them that they must love one another and serve one another in love. But then down in verse 36 of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because he had said that he was going. And he says in verse um, 33, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Now, it's interesting that Jesus recognized that they were following. They were disciples. And he predicts an interruption, but not a, not a total washout. In no way would they, their discipleship be revoked. In fact, we are sure of that because he says, you will follow me afterward. These are words that speak of discipleship. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I... Not follow you now. I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, You will will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. What we see here is an attitude in Peter of great self confidence, an attitude that Jesus needed to deal with. And so in verse thirty seven, Peter's bragging that he he'll die for him. Lay his life down. 
We'll go with you anywhere. Jesus had predicted his death. We'll go with you. But Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Before you graduate from this three-year school of theology, there's one more important class you're going to take. It's called Failure 101. And there you're going to learn some of the biggest lessons of life. Well, we know, we, we know what happened in the story. We know that as Jesus was arrested, chapter 18, if we would skip ahead a little bit, Jesus was arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter did put up a good fight. You know, he struck the high priest's servant's ear and uh, cut the ear off. A good show at first. But as they took Jesus away to the high priest's house, it says in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. There's that word follow again. And so did another disciple. There's the word disciple, which is associated with the word follow. That other disciple was most likely John, the author of this book. And it says that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Here's the first denial. Peter denies that he is a disciple, and yet we, we read, according to John the author, that he is following Jesus. How ironic, one who follows and yet denies the Lord. Jesus is questioned in the high priest's house, and it tells us in verse 25 that Simon Peter stood and warmed himself there at the fire. And therefore, they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. The second denial. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter was cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And then Peter denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. It is said that in Jerusalem, the rooster crows uh, three times after midnight. And here Peter denies the Lord two more times, and the rooster crows exactly as Jesus had predicted. Peter the rock, who one moment was willing to lay down his life for the Lord, now turns to sand and lets the Lord down. The interesting thing to me about the passage is what I've already noted is that in, even in this passage, in the context of his failure, Peter is still called a disciple. I've said all along that I think God is trying to show us something with Peter's life as a model, as a model disciple. Perhaps God is just showing us that sometimes letting the Lord down is a part of discipleship or an interruption in the journey of discipleship, to be more exact. There were some warning signs that I believe were, should have been known or should have been observed before Peter failed the Lord. Let me give you the three warning signs. I'll begin with a P if you want to remember them. One is prayer, prayer, pride, I'm sorry. Not prayer, pride. Chapter 13 and verse 37, he was willing to lay his life down for his sake. He was so confident in himself. Why can't I follow you? He was sure that he could. He was sure that he would never forsake the Lord. You've heard people say never, say never, 
right? See, I said I would never be a pastor. My wife said she'd never marry a pastor. Never say never. It'll come back to haunt you. I think Peter was sincere. I think he was just ignorant of his pride and what he was really capable of. C.S. Lewis said pride is the only disease that when a person has it, he thinks everybody else has it and not himself. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, I think Jesus was trying to warn Peter and prepare him for this incident. The Lord said to him, Simon, 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 indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Satan has asked that he would sift you as wheat. Satan wants to sift you, separate the kernel from the chaff and wheat, the precious part from the useless part. And he wants you to show, he wants to show that you are useless. He wants to render you useless. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you. I think there is a limit to what God will allow Satan to do in our lives, but that's not to say Satan, God will not allow Satan, perhaps, to tempt us or to try us. I think one of the greatest levers that, that Satan has in our lives is our pride. And we say, oh, I would never do that. I'd never cheat on that, on a test. I'd never steal money from my company. I'd never be unfaithful to my wife or to my husband. The Bible says, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Words that Peter should have known. One sign of eminent failure is pride in our own ability. The second P, another sign of failure, is prayerlessness. There we go. See, it's not prayer. It's prayerlessness. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 40 through 46, we have... Again, this night, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and they followed him there, it tells us. And in verse 40, he comes to the place, and he says to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he prayed, and saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And an angel appears to him and strengthens him. And Prays even more earnestly so that sweat like blood drops are falling from him. Verse 45 says he rose up from prayer. He comes to his disciples and he finds them sleeping from sorrow. And he says to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Prayer is a protection against temptation. Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or deliver us from the evil one. Satan is like a roaring lion walking throughout the earth seeking whom he may devour. And our only defense is to be prayerful at all times. The old Scottish proverb says, the devil's boots don't squeak. If we have an attitude, oh, I can handle it. I can take care of myself. I don't need to pray. Things are going well. It's a dangerous attitude, isn't it? 
Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm talking so much about in depth about that in that classic passage about spiritual warfare. How does Paul end? He ends by saying, and praying always. It's an integral part of our spiritual defense. Abiding with Christ, realizing that without him we can do nothing. That's where prayer takes us, into the presence of Jesus Christ, his protective presence. The third P is presumption. If you look back in John chapter 18, in verse 10, we see the presumption that Peter had that he could get out of this in his own strength. Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. You know, Peter was a strong man, I take it. To be a fisherman, pulling those nets, to live in the elements, you had to be a pretty rough character. You had to be pretty strong. I imagine he was pretty confident in his physical ability. He's the one that jumped in the water when, in the middle of the storm when Jesus was walking on the water. He's the one that jumps in the water after the resurrection. Peter was used to trusting in his strength and in his flesh, but it let him down at the end. The Bible shows us time and time again that trusting in the strength takes us where we don't want to go. Abraham trusted in his strength and had Ishmael. God had to bring Isaac through a promise. Jacob, trusting in his strength, got the blessing, uh, the birthright from Esau, but God would only bless him in his weakness when he smote his hip. Philippians 4.13 does say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but it depends on how you read that. Do you read it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a contrast in the story. Peter the rough, strong fisherman, cowering in fear from a little servant girl because he trusted presumptuously in his own flesh. Someone said Peter boasted too much, prayed too little, acted too soon. And the result was he followed too far off and said too little for once in his life. Pride, prayerlessness, presumption, the warning signs of failure. Do you recognize any of those things in your life or the lives of those around you? If so, there may come a time when your walk with the Lord, your discipleship will be interrupted. You will fail, perhaps, in the area of which you are most proud, area that you give yourself credit for being strong in. Our professor at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, you will fail in the area of your greatest strength. There's rock and sand in each of us. And I appreciate the realistic view that the Bible gives of those in times past who have themselves failed. Not that we like to see it, but it gives us hope that we're normal. When we see King David's failure, and yet he retains the title of a man after God's own heart, we know that there's hope for those who fail. We see Christian leaders today fail. We see pastors fail. Just yesterday, my friend was telling me about a group that he met at 6 in the morning to study the Bible with, and he said, he said, I would have given a lifetime of paychecks to bet that these guys would stay married the rest of their life. And he says, half of them are divorced now. Instead of self-sufficiency, we need to learn Christ's sufficiency. 
Paul's attitude is reflected in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 3 and verse 5, where he says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And just to make sure he got the lesson, God let a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, torment him. And when he prayed to God to remove that thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, doesn't really matter at this point. God did not remove it because he wanted to teach him exactly what he told him. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think it's only when we learn to find our strength in him instead of ourselves that we are ready to serve him and be used greatly by him. There may be interruption in our following, but I think the story of Peter shows us that God will restore us when we fall. There are several things that show that he will restore us. In Luke chapter 22, we find the first one. Luke chapter 22, verse 32, did you catch what Jesus said when he, he said, Satan is going to sift you as wheat in verse 31? Then in verse 32 says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. In fact, he knew his prayer was going to be a success because when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Isn't it good to know that Jesus Christ is praying for us at all times? And when we fail, he is interceding for us as well. He didn't pray for Pe Peter not to fail. He prayed for him not to be destroyed. Not for Satan to get the upper hand. When he was sifted as wheat, he didn't want Satan to, to prove that he was chaff. He wanted to come out with the precious kernel intact. Again, I believe that Satan has limited power. And that God promises, because he's praying for us, that we can withstand temptations. And we don't have to get washed out altogether. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. First John chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, an intercessor, a defense attorney that argues for us before God. We have Jesus Christ praying for us. So his prayer for Peter was one indication that he was going to restore him. And the second thing, I think, comes in verse 61. When Peter's there, after he's denied him, after the rooster crows in verse 60, at that moment, this is such a dramatic moment to imagine, at that moment, Jesus is led to the courtyard of the high priest, and he turns and he looked at Peter. And it says, Peter remembered the word of the Lord, and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. Bitterly. Jesus' look at Peter shattered Peter's heart into a thousand pieces. What was that look? What was that look? Oh, I told you so, Peter. Peter, you really messed up. You let me down. Peter, you've got it coming back. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think it was a look of forgiveness. It was a look of forgiveness that shattered Peter's heart. The look of love and mercy and grace. 
Grace means you don't have to run anymore. It means you don't have to hide anymore. That you're safe with the one who loves you. There's a story of a little boy had a very close relationship with his father. He loved to spend a lot of time with his father, throwing the ball, doing all kinds of different things. And he had a slingshot for Christmas. One day he got a little carried away and sent a stone in the direction of his father's brand new car and put a dent right on the hood of it. And he felt so bad. He felt so guilty. He could hardly look at his father. He could hardly be in his presence. He tried to avoid him for days. And his older brother saw it, see. So his older brother used it against him. You mess up, I'm going to tell Dad exactly what I saw. In fact, I'm supposed to do the dishes tonight. You do them for me. And the little boy, so terrified of what his father would say, went and did the dishes. And his brother took advantage of him for days, cleaning his room, doing the chores he was supposed to do. Finally, the little boy couldn't take it any longer. I can't avoid my dad any longer. I've got to talk. I've got to talk. Tell him. And he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, you know that dent in the hood of your car? His father said, yeah. He says, I'm the one that put it there. His father said, I know, son. His son said, but will you forgive me? He says, you see, I was looking out the window when you did that. And when you did it, I forgave you. So that later that day, the older brother says, hey, by the way, I want you to watch my football uniform. Little brother says, hey, you know what you can do with that uniform? See, grace frees us. It sets us free. We're not, we're not uh, fugitives anymore under grace. We have a father who loves us, and we can go to him. And he looks at us in mercy and love and forgiveness. It's safe to turn ourselves in. Someone said that forgiveness is the odor that a flower breathes when it is trampled upon. And we have the wonderful promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful to His character, faithful to His promise to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive us our past sins, to forgive us our present sins, for grace is great enough to forgive us our future sins. My friends, that's an awesome thought. I think that when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just die for the sins that you committed yesterday, but He died for the sins knowing full well that you will commit tomorrow. There's nothing you will do tomorrow that will surprise the Lord. And he loves you anyway. And that's exactly what another indication that he was going to restore Peter was his love for him. And that, we won't need to turn to it, but John 21 shows us the love that the Lord had for Peter. John chapter 21 is the epilogue to the book of John where three times the Lord asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, with his confidence deflated, says, well, Lord, I love you. But he doesn't use the, the maximum word for love. And yet three times Jesus said to Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to feed my sheep. He was giving him responsibility to minister. He was showing that he had confidence in him. He was restoring him to responsibility. Peter's regret led to restoration. What a contrast that is with Judas's regret that led to remorse and suicide. Peter found forgiveness. You see, it wasn't the end of God's plan when Peter failed. It wasn't the end of God's plan for Peter. It was really just another beginning. Really just a very, very important part of his whole training. 
And he really wasn't ready for ministry, I think, until Jesus taught him how to come back from a failure. In some sovereign way, God uses the failures in our lives. The things that we are not proud of and sometimes the things that we are ashamed of to make us more humble and to help us serve him with more compassion and sincerity. Chuck Swindoll has said that before God can use a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply. Perhaps you've been hurt deeply in the past. Don't count it as a curse. Count it as a blessing. Something that God can use to help others. I came across a line from Louis L'Amour in one of his novels, the writer of Western fiction. He said, I don't even know the context, I forget, but he said, there will come a time when you believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. God never tires of new beginnings. pastor told me that a long time ago, and I've held it dear since, that God never tires of new beginnings. We get tired of bringing the same things back to him and asking forgiveness, but God never tires of new beginnings. His grace is endless and abounding. And where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You know, there's an interesting tradition. Tradition, uh, perhaps you've heard it, has always said that whenever Peter, after that time, whenever Peter heard a, a rooster crow for the rest of his life, he would just fall down and weep bitterly. But you know what? I don't believe that for a second. I think that's poor theology. I think Peter understood the grace and the forgiveness and the love of his, his Lord and was not cowering with guilt the rest of his life. At the resurrection, the angel tells Mary, Go and tell his disciples and Peter. It's almost as if there's an emphasis there. We want Peter in on this again. He's one of us. He's a disciple. He's never stopped following. Though he stumbled and fell, he's still one of the disciples. You and I are going to fail the Lord at times. But remember, it's not the end of the journey. It's just a part of the journey. A pause in the journey. It may be a passage to greater ministry. And to greater intimacy. And a deeper walk with the Lord in the end. But there are things in our lives that need to be sifted. God has prepared a class for us that we may have to go through. But consider it a time of great growth and great opportunity. And remember that when we fail, when we try, we fail. When we trust, we succeed. And failure doesn't have to be fatal when God is in it. God loves us. So we've been talking these last few days about discipleship as a journey and watched Peter as he goes from the initial stages of that journey right on until he falls flat on his face and, and then he's restored. And he's restored to a greater ministry than I'm sure he ever dreamed that he would have with all of the Lord's confidence. Perhaps you're here tonight and your journey has been interrupted in some way. Perhaps interrupted by a divorce. And you know that you weren't entirely guiltless, maybe by some careless words that you know you can never take back. Maybe you took a shortcut at work, nobody's discovered it, but it's been haunting you ever since. Maybe you stepped on a few toes and stepped on a few people to get something that you wanted. Maybe you've given in to temptation. 
the love of God and the grace of God forgives us. We don't have to run from him. He'll restore us. He'll forgive our sins. He's our father. Fathers sometimes have to spank, but fathers always love. Let's have a word of prayer, and then if you have some questions, we'll take some questions. Dear Lord, we thank you for the honest model of Peter that you've left us, not, not a bionic believer that is not touched by sin or temptation, but one who is weak as we are weak, one who is proud as we are proud, one who did not pray enough as we did not pray enough, and yet we see that you never failed to love him. And you never failed in your restoration and to keep your promises of forgiveness. And Lord, I know that we here tonight, in some way or other, need to claim those promises of forgiveness and restoration. Not to see ourselves as failures, but to see ourselves as works in progress. Though we've let you down, we know that you can use that for our good and for the good of others around us. And we're trusting you to do that, Lord. We thank you that your grace is, is amazing and abundant, that you never tired of our new beginnings. We thank you for the wonderful grace of Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Well, we have opportunity for some questions. I'll go ahead and prime the pump with one I heard earlier today. All right? Uh, someone said, well, what if, what if someone dies in their sin? They died unfaithfully or in immorality. Uh, they didn't have a chance or they didn't go to the Lord and confess. Do we call that person a Christian still? And I think that's a good question because there are groups and there are branches of theology that would teach that person is not a Christian. They proved it because they died out of fellowship with the Lord. Or, and that just proves that they never really were Christian. But I think that, personally, that that is a very unbiblical, unrealistic view of sin. And uh, that, that sin, uh, the power of sin, is a very real enemy that we fight and struggle with. And sometimes uh, we give in. Then there's another reality in the Bible that teaches that there is a sin unto death. Someone who continues, I think, down a certain path, I think the Lord removes that person to preserve his testimony, whatever testimony he might have had. In fact, I can look back over my experience and see a couple situations where I think that's exactly what happened. A friend, uh, I mentioned my friend who died, and that kind of convinced me to straighten up my life. He died, he died in his sleep probably of a drug overdose. But you see, he had gone to a Christian program. He got, he'd become a Christian. He came back. He witnessed to me. But then he started slipping back into drugs, and it was just like the Lord took him before he messed his testimony up too much. And so, uh, no, uh, I don't think that that proves anybody's not a, not a Christian. I just think it proves the power and the reality of sin and the craftiness of Satan. So, there's your question. There's my answer. Anything else? The question is, if you lose your witness or your credibility, especially like to family members, and uh, because they tend to say, if you say you're a Christian, they tend to think that you're claiming to be holier than they are, and, and then you fail, before them, do you lose your credibility? Yes, you probably do. I think the way to get your credibility back is to go to the people that that were affected by your failure and and do whatever it takes to make restitution or to ask forgiveness. And and I think to not do that would bring your credibility into question. 
or if they see you do something that you know you shouldn't have done and it didn't really relate to them, but they know that you you've done that, then I think the the thing to do is to let them know that you know that what you did is wrong, that you you've repented, you've changed inwardly and outwardly, you've followed through with whatever actions are necessary. And I think that would restore your credibility in part, but up front. We try to tell people, don't we, that, hey, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And hopefully they understand what that means. Well, that's, that's a good question. People often beat themselves up. I think it's just a matter of claiming God's promises and believing them. It's a matter of faith in the end that God would actually forgive, restore, that he would actually love us that much. I think that uh, sometimes people who have those kind of problems were raised in an unforgiving type of environment, and that a lot of that carries over. They, they can't feel like they're really accepted fully. That's why grace is such a beautiful doctrine and so important. It's, it's, it's much bigger than we can get a handle on. When we understand it, it just cures so many of our problems like that. I think that's why I guess I'm so, I've got a soapbox, it's grace. I'm fanatical about something, it's grace. There's worse things in the world to be crazy about. I just like to teach and help people understand what it is because it solves problems like that. God's grace is greater than we could ever imagine. Hebrews chapter 10. A couple different ways of looking at it. One interpretation I read recently made a lot of sense. Of when it's talking about no sacrifice left, it's talking about under the new covenant there's no sacrifice because Jesus, of course, was the sacrifice. And so, uh, But I think basically what it's saying is, is that Jesus has died for our sins, and uh, he can't be re-sacrificed for our sins. Um, I probably would like to study the passage more. It's been a while since I visited it, but uh, uh, sin deliberately does. I, I know what some would say about the passage, that if we continue to sin, that we can't be forgiven. But I don't think that's what it's saying. I think that it's saying, don't despise God's grace. There's nothing more he could do for you, for your forgiveness. And, uh, to sin is, is to just flaunt the grace that he's given to us. Despise it. Hebrews talks about despising God's grace. Well, you know, names names in my life come to my mind when you say that because I, I think we all know people like that. And I think that God, with these crisis situations, is trying to teach us something, but you're right. We have to have the heart that's prepared, a teachable heart. That's difficult because the person is difficult. Uh, the Bible talks about it wisdom and and sometimes people like that bring a lot of calamity on themselves because they don't live in wisdom book of proverbs is a good book it just warns us you know, about the consequences for our sin over and over again if you continue to harden your neck you know you're going to break and uh, maybe some of the warnings from proverbs might help but i know people like that is very frustrating i i feel for you more than i have any answers for you <laughs> Because I know people like that in my life, and, and I don't know that anything's really been effective with them. Pointed, pointed out, I, I can get in their face too and tell them, hey, you're doing this, and expect this consequence, and they'll still do it. I yeah, I think that's, a, that's, that's exactly true with the people I'm thinking of. Is it's always someone else's fault. They, until you're willing to say it's my fault, my problem, there's, there's not much hope. I'm sure we've given the Lord the same type of frustration. That's right. I know I have. You brought up a lot of issues there. 
you're talking about those who would take a verse like Second Corinthians thirteen five that says, you know, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And we Christians ought to be really examining ourselves to see if we're really Christians. Yeah, and then and then they would teach that well, you just we teach easy believism, and I say no, I don't teach easy believism. I teach simple believism. It's not easy to believe. It's not easy to believe that that I'm a sinner that going to hell. It's not easy to believe that Jesus, somebody I never met, seen before, has, has died for my sins, and that it would that that promise would extend over two thousand years and save me today. Not easy to believe that. Um, simple. It's not easy. But what what they're doing is they're focusing on a person's faith instead of on what faith should focus on, which is the Lord. And every time we get our eyes off of the Lord and onto a, our subjective faith, then we get confused message gets cloudy and our assurance gets cloudy as well. And so I, th I think what we're trying to do when we, when we preach about grace is we're trying to get people's eyes on who Jesus is and what he's done for us and his promises to us. And uh, if we get our eyes on ourselves, well, what am I doing? Did I, did I have enough faith? Did I believe enough? Am I living the right kind of life? We always get confused because everybody has a different standard. Everybody, everybody compares to different things. And, um, You'll always be better than somebody, and you'll always be worse than somebody. And so it just doesn't help to compare your life to others. And then every preacher will have a different list of things. Yeah, everybody that teaches that will have a different list of things. They like to use the book of 1 John and say that 1 John gives us all these tests for salvation. And, uh, and the first commentator that wrote that, uh, his name was Law, he said, well, there's four tests in the book of John. And then... Another popular preacher comes along today and says, well, there's 11 tests. And then another one wrote a book recently that I reviewed, and he said, I think there were seven tests. Everybody's got a different list. First of all, First John didn't talk about tests for salvation. So, you know, they, they wasted a lot of time on their books, but keep your eyes on the Lord and not on yourself. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.